0: This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL.
1: There were a few clouds overnight last night. You notice how early sunset is coming? Happens before 8 o'clock. Where did that go? Wasn't it daylight until 10 just two days ago? Weird. But we've had some good looks at the moon because it's been fairly clear. When you look at the moon, what do you notice about it? What do you find? It's not made of green cheese, so you don't notice that. You notice, especially if you're using a telescope, that it has all of these craters on it. Impact craters. Well, as much as we don't necessarily think about this with Earth, we've got our fair share of impact craters, too. And a new paper that has been written outlines a study that was published today in Astrobiology that talks about impact craters and their significance here on Earth as it pertains to how we all got here. One of the authors of that study is Dr. Gordon Osinski and joins us now to talk about impact craters and their significance to perhaps the rest of us. Dr. Oz, how are things?
2: Good day, Mike. It's great to be back on the show.
1: Well, it's great to have you here. You have seen impact craters up close. Do you have a favorite on this planet?
2: Well, I think definitely some of my favorites. Uh, well, the, the favorite would be the first one that I ever visited, and is actually what brought me to Canada over 20 years ago, and that's up in the Canadian high Arctic, a place called the Horton Crater on Devon Island, and it's just a fantastic place. It's uh, 23 kilometers across, and which uh, you know, is pretty big. Um, and relatively young, geologically speaking, at just 23 million years old, and actually, a lot of the ideas in this paper um, kind of came about from the studies up in the Arctic.
1: When you are in that particular crater, when you're walking around it, does it even feel like you're on Earth? Does it look like something out of out of some sci-fi movie?
2: Yeah, because uh, no, <laughs> because it's in a polar desert environment too. You know, there's no vegetation around, no nothing. So it's a very kind of barren the awe-inspiring environment. Um, but one of the tricks is that be- craters this size, when you stood there, you know, at grand zero, it's really hard to get a, you know, to just imagine what it would have been like. You know, you're, you're looking out 10 kilometers in either direction. Yeah.
1: And with that and those 10 kilometers in either direction, you're seeing the impact of, uh, do we even know how large a rock it would take to make something like that?
2: Yeah, so the staggering thing is that there's only, you know, it would have only taken a crater, uh, sorry, an asteroid maybe one or two kilometers across to form that 23-kilometer diameter crater.
1: Okay, well then let's talk about some of the significance of that, because we don't really want to be on Earth when it gets hit by an asteroid or a meteor. Uh, or a meteor. Help us understand, a meteor or meteorite, which one hits the ground?
2: Yeah, sorry. I was having a bit of feedback there, so I'll just switch to my phone. Um, oh, sorry. Oh, no. So hopefully you can hear me okay now? Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, picture an asteroid one or two kilometers across, hurtling towards Earth, faster than, you know, uh, a sniper's rifle, faster than anything we can manage here on Earth. And probably the first thing you think about is not a particularly positive thing. And so, you know, these kinds of events led to the extinction of the dinosaurs and, you know, 65 million years ago. So in this paper, we want to focus on the positive. Um, We've kind of shown that after craters form, they could have been ideal cradles for the origin of life on Earth. And this kind of leads to, you know, other planets such as Mars, where craters are also really abundant, too. Okay,
1: let's connect some of the dots then. We're talking with Dr. Gordon Osinski from Western University about something that was published today, a new study in astrobiology about impact craters and what those could contain. So you've just hinted that these impact craters could be a great place for life to have started on Earth. How do we get from a great big rock that can do a lot of damage to the Earth to, hey, guess what? Babies.
2: Yes, it, it's a pretty surprising, isn't it, and um, maybe not something you would expect. And so if we start at the beginning, um, you know, all life on Earth is carbon-based. And so how do we get those actually building blocks here to Earth in the first place, you know, four and a half billion years ago? Um, so what we do in this paper is kind of review the idea that a lot of the essential elements for life could have either been delivered by comets and asteroids or actually produced by them as they pass through the atmosphere in really kind of complex reactions. So you have the building blocks, but then, you know, the environment. And still one of the key places on Earth we think life may have originated is what we call hydrothermal systems, which comes from a couple of Greek words, heat and water. So anywhere on Earth, and if you picture Yellowstone or New Zealand where you've got kind of hot springs and geysers, um, we know that life thrives in those kind of hot springs, and uh, active springs today are in these volcanically active regions, again, such as like Yellowstone and Iceland. Um, but what we've shown in uh, this paper and a series of other papers is that craters, probably most craters on Earth and on Mars over a certain size of only a few kilometers could also generate these hydrothermal systems, you know, providing these great environments for life to originate.
1: And then it kind of forms from there. now, one of the challenges you probably have is proving this. Is there any way to prove this, or does it remain a theory because of millions of years of rock forming over rock?
2: For sure, you know we I don't think we will ever know where and when life originated on Earth because we've essentially lost all the rock records from the first half a billion years of Earth's history where we think life originated. Um, You know, because of plate tectonics, erosion, volcanism, that record doesn't exist. Um, But, you know, maybe on Mars. Um, We talked, I think, the last time I was on this show about the Perseverance rover that is on its way to Jezero crater on Mars. And we know that that crater formed early in Mars' history. So, ironically, maybe it will help solve the origin of life on Earth, how it evolved and where it originated by perhaps exploring Mars or another object in the solar system. Well, maybe. And uh, why
1: would Mars give us maybe more hope than the Earth does in trying to figure out whether life could form after an impact crater?
2: Yeah, for sure. Great question. Um, Well, you you started out this by talking about the moon. You know, on a clear night, even without a telescope, you can look up and see that it's pot marked by impact craters. And a large part of Mars, not all of Mars, is like the moon, too. And they look like that because they've had very little geological activity since, you know, that surface was formed four to four and a half billion years ago. So, you know, that record has been lost on Earth, but it's preserved on the moon and it's preserved in, you know, what we call the heavily cratered southern highlands on Earth to, sorry, on Mars.
1: Wow. Well, we'll see what comes out of the exploration of the rover that will reach Mars. Uh, I guess it's it's blasted off, so it's it's yeah. getting closer. I think we can say that safely, right?
2: Yep. yep.
1: Well, we'll see what happens there, but this is a fascinating topic, Dr. Ozinski. Thank you so much for doing the research and for talking about what it's like to be in an impact crater. Any trips planned in, in the near future, if we ever get out of this pandemic, to revisit some other impact craters?
2: Uh, absolutely, in the next year. Yeah, I should have actually been up in Labrador and another impact crater today. But, uh, of course, that was mixed with uh, COVID-19. But we're looking forward to getting back in the field in 2021.
1: Well, can't wait to hear what you find when that happens. Thanks so much for this, and keep safe.
2: All right. Thanks very much, Mike. Thanks for having me on the show.
1: That is Dr. Gordon Osinski. He is a professor in Western's Department of Earth Sciences, and he has authored a new study, and it was published today in Astrobiology, so the idea that these impact craters could have brought life from other places, you never know how the old universe works, and the hard thing is, we can't really come up with the answers. You can't, even with smartphones, you can't call and say, hey, you know what, we've been puzzling over this for a while. Can you You just enlighten us? Can you Just give us the answers. How, how did we get here? And even with the Earth... You can't say, all right, it did happen in an impact crater because we've had layers of sedimentary rock that have formed over time, as the paper suggests. So maybe Mars and the fact that we've had maybe some more recent hits and who knows. That rover is due to arrive in, what are we now, eight months? Where will the world be in eight months COVID-19 spreads. I think by now, if we're to know one thing about it, we know that. Spreads pretty easily. There are measures that we're trying to take to prevent that spread, minimize that spread. And it's difficult to know what's going to happen as we all look to head back inside as the weather gets colder. The sun was down last night. I was driving along Warncliffe and it was not even 8 o'clock. And it was dark. And I thought, where, where did the summer go? So that's coming. So what can we expect if we look at the way that the spread of the disease goes? And how about if we're grouping in larger numbers going forward? Well, Ryan Imgrund has done a phenomenal job for a long time at looking at data and presenting it to the rest of us he's a hospital biostatistician and department head of science at the south lake regional health center and also has some teaching background and joins us now ryan how is wednesday for you
0: hey how you doing today
1: Ryan, let's talk a little bit about what it is that you have aimed to put together through this pandemic. What's been your goal as you wake up and look around at all kinds of numbers?
0: Yeah, so really, my goal is to make sure people understand their own risk whenever they are going about their daily activities, whether it's returning back to somewhat normal or whether it's going back to work, school, or any other place like that.
1: Well, we've had some people return to work. The big one is returning to school. So we'll get to that in just a moment. But how do you present the data that you accumulate? What are you showing to people who maybe haven't seen it before?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that has got the best feedback so far has been a risk assessment. So basically what it shows is that in your region, what the chance is that you have of encountering someone with COVID-19, in a group size of, let's say, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever it may be.
1: So if we're to look at Middlesex London, for example, if we have a group of 10 people, how high is our risk of one of them actually having it?
0: Very, very low right now. Actually, Middlesex London has been doing fantastic recently. Um, very, very few uh, like cases this last little bit. Um, and the, the chance rate now um, is just above 0% in a, a group of 10 for Middlesex, London. So it's not that high.
1: Okay, so if we start to bump that number up a little bit, where do we find a point at which we say, ooh, that that kind of looks a little dangerous? How many people do we have to put together?
0: That's a really good question. I think one of the things that you've got to keep in mind is its it, is it really depends on what your exposure is. If you are around someone, indoors, not physically distanced, and you're not actually masked up, that number should become much smaller that you should be worried. Whereas if you're outside, you're physically distanced, you're wearing a mask, you don't have to be as worried about that number in that situation.
1: Okay. And in Middlesex, London, if we look at your data, even if we have a group of 100 people you have a one percent chance of encountering somebody who has COVID-19 even if it's 500 you have a 4.8 percent chance if you look at those numbers how do we interpret them statistically because I know it's easy for us to say oh well one percent and 4.8 percent those are low numbers but what should we know about those numbers
0: yeah the one thing that I kind of look at is that value of around 5%. Like the one thing that we have to keep in mind is not every single time that we encounter someone who has COVID-19 will it actually be passed on to us. But if we encounter 500 people and we have that 5% chance of encountering with someone with COVID-19, if we're very close to them, um, about one of every 10 times, we would actually get that infection from that other individual. And that 5% value, it worries me because it does roughly transmit uh, translate into a 0.5% chance of actually getting COVID-19, or basically one in, uh, you know, like 200 chance.
1: So it, when you put it that way, this is not something that you say, all right, I'm I'm, I'm just going to do what Kirk Cousins, the quarterback of the Minnesota Vikings, uh, is doing, and just, you know, if I get it, I get it. What you're saying is, no, 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 we we can't have that attitude, because you might get it, and the incidence or, or the, the opportunity to get it seems a whole lot higher than 5% might sound on a piece of paper.
0: 100%. And I think the one thing which we which we have to keep in mind, too, is that we don't know like everyone that actually has COVID-19. What we find is we actually capture about one of every four cases. And not only that, but even some of the ones that we do actually capture, they have no symptoms either. So there's so many cases that you know, we actually have that, we don't actually capture them all. And I think that's important for people to know what, um, that you're not going to know everyone who definitely has a COVID-19 case.
1: We're talking right now with Ryan Imgrun, and Ryan is a hospital biostatistician at South Lake Regional Health Centre. And you've also done some teaching, or are you still doing some teaching?
0: I am still teaching. I actually plan to do, uh, go back next week. Um, I'm in a, the designated school board, which is in an urban center school board where high school students return and they have classes
1: of 15 or less. So knowing what you do because you study the data so closely, getting ready to go back and teach high school students, Ryan, how do you feel?
0: I'm not worried myself because I have a, a class size of 15. I'm in a very large science classroom. It is a well-ventilated science classroom. I have no worries myself. My Biggest worries are in some of the non-urban centers where we have high school students returning in the classes of 30 or 35 students where they're masked, but they're not going to be distant. They're going to be moving throughout the school. They're going to be like eating inside of classrooms. So even though I'm not worried myself, it doesn't mean that it's that low of a risk everywhere else, too.
1: How would you like to see things done so that the data would support things being safe? Would it be, as everyone seems to be asking for, smaller class sizes? Is that, is that a big key component that's being missed right now in your mind?
0: It, it is a huge, huge component. And I think that's one of the reasons why I feel safe is because there will only be 15 students in the like class that I'm actually in. And they're also masked. I'm really worried. And that whole JK through grade three cohort where they're not masked, they're not physically distanced. And then when you get to that grade four through eight, they're not going to be physically distanced, but they are masked. So you've got kind of levels of safety in the schools, but they're still being taught by the exact same teachers who will be susceptible to this and also students who are able to bring COVID-19 home.
1: If we look at the flattening of the curve overall we can say hey we have flattened the curve in terms of case counts but you produce a different kind of a curve and that is the effective reproduction number of COVID-19 and that seems to be something that if you look at the graph has risen a little bit can you help us understand what that represents and what the rise represents
0: 100% so yeah the RT is the effective reproduction number. And basically what it means, it's the number of cases that one infected person will actually cause. So if the RT value was one, it means that one person that's infected is going to cause one more case. If that happened forever, that means that we would kind of plateau with how many daily cases we see now. Initially, the RT was around 2.8. Now, that may not sound like a lot, but that means in the span of like a one month, You're going from, you know, five daily cases to, you know, 1,000 daily cases if it stays above one for a very, very long period of time. So really what we want is we want that value low, preferably 0.7 or less for a very, very long period of time. And then we can really kick these cases down. What we're seeing, though, is since about August 4th, it's been above one every single day since august 4th now it's not significantly above one it's between you know one to 1.15 but it's still enough that we're not seeing those low case counts anymore of 50 cases in ontario per day we're now up to you know 120 130 140 cases a day
1: Okay, and if we look at, at that moving forward, what will help us to suggest that this is, is heading in the other direction? Do we want to see fewer case counts or do we want to look at that, that transmission rate as to how many people one person is infecting?
0: It's a the combination of everything. You want to keep the weekly cases per 100,000 people low, but you also want to keep the RT value low as well. If you have a low weekly case count, And you have an RT of, you know, one, it's not a bad thing because that one case will lead to one more weekly case, which will lead to one weekly case and you'll be stuck there. The issue becomes if you've got 15 weekly cases per 100,000 people and you've got that RT of one, it means that we will forever see 15 weekly cases per 100,000 people. That's not going to change.
1: Well, Ryan, keep up the amazing work because this is something that really helps to put things into perspective. Ryan is a great follow on Twitter, and you can find him on Twitter at Imgrun, which is at I-M-G-R-U-N-D. Easy as that. Ryan, be safe going back to school, and thanks again for all of the information that you're providing on a daily basis. How long does this take you to put together? Um
0: i got it down now that it takes like 30 minutes every night, um, but at the start, I mean, set, setting up these models took a really, really long time to do.
1: Well, thanks for doing it because it puts some visuals to something that we can't seem to get our heads around in terms of all of the changing and all the numbers that comes at us. So you've made it a whole lot easier. Be safe, and thanks for the time today.
0: Same to you. You take it easy.
1: Bye. That's Ryan Imgrind. And Ryan is a high school teacher. He's also a hospital biostatistician and the department head of science at the South Lake Regional Healthcare Center. And as he looks at it, we are seeing a bit of a rise in terms of how many people are being infected by somebody who is infected. And as much as you look at the low numbers that we have produced, they're very good, as he said. But that transmission rate is still there. And so if you're in a group that is fairly large or if you allow your bubble to expand, and this is not, okay, well, I haven't been to a party with 150 people, so I'm okay. No, it's who is your housemate going to see, whether it's a family member or a roommate or whatever. Who are they seeing? How big is their bubble? And then those people, how big is their bubble? And that's about to change in a big way as kids go back to school. Because they can talk about cohorts all they want. I want to see how these work. How do you tell someone who's eight years old who doesn't have parents who are taking them aside saying, you realize we're in a pandemic here. There are going to be eight-year-olds who go back to school. I guarantee it. They go back to school. They have no idea that we're in a pandemic. Because I still see people in their behavior on the street. And I wonder, do you have any idea that we are in a pandemic? Do you have any clue whatsoever? It's happened more and more now that we've gotten a dog. You're out for a walk with the dog. People just come flying over, pick up the dog. Who are you? I don't know who you are. Don't touch my dog. In Ontario, we've talked about it a lot today. We're able to watch and see, okay, you're doing that, and how's that going? Okay, we'll... uh... We'll see how we're going to do things. And you watch it play out. In a world where precedent is hard to come by in a pandemic, we have some. And some more is being established if we're thinking major junior hockey and whether or not the Ontario Hockey League can get itself going in December. That is the plan. And that plan is being made a whole lot more optimistic by what's happening in the QMJHL right now because they are at training camp and they are planning to begin their season, their regular season, in a couple of weeks. Willie Palov is a sports reporter with the Halifax Chronicle-Herald and has done a fantastic job for years covering the QMJHL and joins us on London Live. Willie, thanks for taking the time for us.
3: Oh, yeah, anytime. Nice talking to you.
1: Okay, let's see. This is all true, right? That This has not been some kind of virtual online. The QMJHL is coming, but it's actually NHL 20 games played on screens. There are actual players at actual training camps right now.
3: It is all true. So uh, the way it worked was uh, all the players, Canadian players, I should point out, travel to uh, the cities where their teams play Um mid-August. Spent two weeks isolated in hotels, didn't uh, go outside, had meals delivered there, full quarantine. And then after the two weeks, they started practices on Sunday. So we've already had games here. Uh, preseason games started last night. So it's on. Um, practices, I went to one on the first day. It was me, the general manager, media relations guy, and a scout. And that's it. The whole building was empty other than that, uh, besides obviously the people on the ice and the staff. So they're being really, really careful. Um, and then, uh, if, if this goes well, yeah, they'll have games starting on October 1st with, uh, you know, fans in some arenas, not full capacity. Uh, as far as I know right now, they won't have fans in the rinks in Quebec, but, uh, here in Nova Scotia, they're going to have, probably close to about, I don't know, 25% capacity. People will be socially distanced wearing masks. Uh, They can even sit in bubbles up to 200 people. And uh, same in New Brunswick and PEI. So it it is happening.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, all of that sounds okay. In terms of testing players from this point on because we don't have bubbles in these cities the players are are living with billets and and doing the same things they would normally be doing
3: yeah so here's here's the some of the pushback i hear from people uh around nova scotia which is that most of these players or at least let's call it half of the players do go to high school um they all go to the same high school but it doesn't really matter they're in classrooms with uh kids their own age, uh, up to a 1,000 in that building. Um, And our whole return to school is is another conversation. But uh, I think the approach was that um, if we can have kids in school, then we can have kids playing hockey. And then I think the rest of the province is on hold for whether all of minor hockey, soccer, basketball, the rest of the team sports can all return too. So we're at a real sort of inflection point here and uh the next week or two weeks uh we're going to be all watching carefully for a bunch of different reasons
1: well we're certainly watching all the way from ontario as well willie paloff joining us from the halifax chronicle herald willie you had pointed out at the beginning that canadian players came and were quarantined in hotels there are european-based players there are american players who play in the qmjhl what is their status
3: they're not allowed coming here yet. We can have people coming to Nova Scotia. And again, a, a lot of the uh the rules are the same in Prince Edward Island and New Brunswick. So, uh there's a little bit of a difference in Quebec, but uh, I'll just backtrack myself for a sec. We do have this Atlantic bubble, which also includes Newfoundland and Labrador, and we got there because the cases are virtually non-existent. Right now, I think we've got six active here in Nova Scotia. And that that is actually high. We we were weeks at a time with no cases. So to get to that point, to stay at that point, uh, they decided people can travel here from other provinces, but only if there's a two-week quarantine. But beyond that, there's no Americans coming here, uh, unless it's for a work reason, and no one from Europe or anywhere else, unless it's for a work reason. So um, without getting sidetracked on the debate about whether or not these uh, junior players are employees, they are not classified that way, so they're not allowed coming right now so for the mooseheads that means uh their two european players aren't here and uh, their number 2 center from massachusetts is not here so it's uh it's not just that they're opening up all the doors there's there's still some uh some restrictions that are are keeping it from being fully uh hockey the way we know it
1: and as far as the season goes you mentioned the atlantic bubble the league has been divided into three six team divisions how does the season schedule play out as it stands right now
3: exactly so it's an 18 team league so they split it into three divisions of six and uh there are six maritime teams so for 60 games unlike a season of 68 which we normally have uh each team's going to play the same five teams over and over and over again and the same's going to happen up in quebec where it's divided geographically so there's six teams that are basically in the western or northern part of Quebec uh, against each other, and then uh, six over in the middle and in the east. It's not perfect because obviously the geography doesn't completely lend itself to that, but I suppose that's how they they made it safer, and they also decided by doing that it's going to help a lot with the travel. Um, You you take the Mooseheads here in Halifax as an example. Well, they're not going to be taking that, uh, six or seven day trip to play three teams, uh, you know, let's say Gatineau, Rune, noranda and Val hours and hours and hours away, uh, hotel stays, meals, everything else, all those other expenses that go with that kind of trip. So most games or a lot of games, they can go up and back in the same day. So, uh, with, the limited amount of revenue coming in for fans, uh, it, it's really the only way to keep it afloat.
1: Well, I mean, it is it is at least encouraging to know that it is beginning. As a final question, Willie, we're talking with Willie Palov from the Halifax Chronicle-Herald. Uh, how about testing for the players? Are they subjected to any daily testing or routine testing?
3: As far as I don't know, no, but, uh, again, here in Halifax or Nova Scotia, we have pretty, pretty good access to testing any time, so... I suppose now that these players have all quarantined or are the ones who are already here and live here uh, are just going to abide by the same rules as the rest of us. If you, if you have some symptoms or if you feel off, you, you go in and get tested. The re, the turnaround for results is really quick. Um, but uh, as we all know, the, the big hurdle will come if one player or one staff member or anybody actually gets a positive. That's, that's where, we, uh, we're going to have to watch. It's a lot different than a bubble. Uh, in a bubble, uh, they're tested as a group all the time, the NHL and the NBA, all these teams. Uh, the Canadian Pr- Premier League soccer is in Charlottetown. You know, they can track it that way, but everybody here is mixing with, with the general population. So That's, that's going to be the test.
1: Well, we'll see how it does play out. So far, so good, which at least is encouraging. Willie, thank you so much for describing this for us.
3: Anytime. Nice talking
1: to you. Thanks. Nice talking to you. Take care. That's Willie Palov from the Halifax Chronicle-Herald, where he covers the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League. So is it perfect? No, but case counts have been low in Atlantic Canada. And that's what they're basing this from, where, yes, the players are still going to school, so you're still subjected to those bubbles, what does happen? What kind of an impact does this have on the Ontario Hockey League and the Western Hockey League if this does not go well and the case counts are as low as they are in Atlantic Canada and we'll see what happens in Quebec? That's, that's a significant question. It really is. And it's one that we'll bear watching over the next month, month and a bit until we have some kind of answer. You're just asking people to do what they're supposed to do. And that's what we're all being asked. It doesn't sound difficult, but humans make it difficult.
0: You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.